0: Welcome to the Seaward Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about extreme storage. I'm Jennifer Mathiasson, an objects conservator based in Kermarsenshire.
1: And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. Hello. So uh, today we're going to talk about extreme
0: storage. And for that, we are joined by a <gasps> special guest host. Would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Hello, I'm Emma Duggan and I'm a Conservation Collections Care Manager over at the Wellcome Collection in London. And yes, I am Mistress of All Storage.
1: I love it. <laughs>
0: Amazing.
2: What a good title.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, if that's not on your business card, you are missing a trick. Not envious at all. Super cool place.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and we open soon again. Yay. Oh. <laughs> when do you open? So we're going to go back in the building uh, towards the end of April but we open on the 18th mm-hmm. of May so we've Aww. got, got new, some new exhibitions open.
1: Amazing and are they set up a, a recording date is the uh, 2nd of April 2021 just for future listeners going what's all the fuss about yeah 2021 that's what the fuss is about. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been able to put all that in whilst you've been locked down?
2: We did it actually in December. So we were really ahead of the game and then um, the government shut us down. Oh, so we, we just had to mothball the new exhibitions, but we'll be opening with them, which is fantastic. So um, they'll have a slightly shorter run than we first hoped for, but they'll be really, really cool.
0: So I thought we might start with kind of our experiences of what's, what extreme storage is. So this goes beyond like, hey, it's in a building that we all go into all the time. Mm. So uh, what sort of experiences do we have of
1: unusual storage, if, if any? I mean, fairly, to be honest, limited. The main thing is large stuff storage. And most of that experience that I have was with Emma as my manager. <laughs> Basically, you know, the storage of gigantic engines and, you know, this linotype machine and can we move it about with, you know, massive forklifts and stuff like that. And, you know, dealing with pretty heavy duty things yeah but i can't remember this this is one of the the episode topics that was um came up with back in the day um back in the day as in a couple of years ago maybe <laughs> and i think we thought of it because we were thinking of like deep storage and cold storage and anoxic oxic and things like that yeah And i definitely don't have experience of that
0: no, I think this may have been me just blurting out that, oh, it would be fun to do one on extreme storage. Because, at, oh yeah, at the time, and this is not a personal experience, much as something I kind of encountered and I was fascinated by, was the one I worked in in Cambridge, the Cambridgeshire County Council, their archaeology collection, because they're, you know, it's where archaeology gets deposited. They keep their archaeology collection in deep stores or so in salt mines. Mm. And it's like properly, you know, underground. All the boxes are barcoded and if you need something retrieved and looked at for, you know, archaeological study, then you just kind of ask for the box with the right barcode on it. I was just super fascinated by this. You could be so oddly precise with it. And then there's a certain amount of like retrieval time for like Mm. basically deep store to kind of find the box, which is easy because they know where everything is. Uh,
1: (laughs) I think that's probably the most extreme element of it, to be honest. I'm like,
2: what do you mean you know where
1: everything is? (laughs) Uh, Not to spill the tea or anything, but museums often
0: don't know where their stuff is.
2: (laughs) Have you been been down, Jenny? No, I haven't.
0: I I would love to. It looks super cool. It is Amazing. I've seen so many pictures, but I suspect it's one of those places where it's like you can't get a grasp of the scale unless you've actually been.
2: It's it's like a cathedral down there. It's absolutely amazing. So so welcome. Oh my god! I have a lot of our archives uh, over in Deep Store, and you go down, you know, to do collection checks and various things like that, and you uh, you have your safety briefing, obviously, and you have like a, a special bum bag that contains um forty five minutes of oxygen should there be a fire. <gasps> <laughs> what <laughs> to get you to a safe place, and then when we went down last time, um generally the the lifts are kind of like department store lifts, so you don't feel you know get anything kind of crazy going on. But they were being uh, just checked when we last went, and so we went down in the proper engineers lift, and it just felt oh like God. you were a minor or you were in oh. Indiana Jones or something like that because it was just pitch black, and th- like four or five of you could fit in, and you just went down, and you just saw the light just going as you were descending into this cavern that is so post-apocalyptic
0: i love it i'm here for it
2: i I would ask (laughs) for that lift so
1: i have a bit of a thing i think in life where i'd actually rather not do anything in my life where i've got to pack oxygen with me like i'd like it to be available wherever i'm going
2: (laughs) you are not a space
0: explorer are you
2: i'm not i'm not an anything explorer (laughs) but it's absolutely fab when you get down there because it's huge it's just like a cathedral underground of all these different uh, areas and they've got you know trucks down there driving you know to collect salt obviously for the roads and things like this and um within a few minutes the salt is on your your lips so you taste slightly salty it's, but it's it's absolutely lovely because it's all obviously hewn away but it's like a salmon pink rock salt color it's really kind of quite special down there
1: so i've got a couple of questions with deep store so firstly what's the deal with the salt how do you stop it being mega salty down there and is this a problem for storing metals I, this is where my mind went as well when initially i
2: heard about it because i was like wait salt mice though like
1: salt (laughs) a bit salty right
2: (laughs) (laughs) well so so we we store paper archives down there in boxes Mm. but generally um, so you you can basically have different levels of humidification and controlled environment essentially so we almost have Ah. like the gold standard so it is so stable down there there's absolutely no problems there's no peaks or troughs or anything the environment is completely flat (laughs) which is fantastic with all the planet there. So it's, yeah, the the salt isn't an issue really. Um, Obviously for the material we hold down there, it wouldn't be an issue anyway.
0: I mean, I guess tasting salt on your lips, that's one thing, but like you are a human being, you're moving through the spaces that aren't controlled, right? Because you're in the lift and then you're in like whatever, uh, there must be corridors connecting Mm -hmm. these different spaces and that sort of thing, right? So you're in the uncontrolled spaces and then you enter the controlled spaces, I'm guessing, where things are actually stored and then that's a, that's slightly, that's like a microcosm in the in the mines I'm guessing
2: and so it's it's essentially yeah you have your own pod and your pod is the size of I mean it's huge absolutely huge ours with all racking inside of it and then depending on what humidity levels you want the plant is um, programmed and then it's just goes for it it's completely stable it's lovely really nice that sounds amazing
1: so what, what I've just written down is how many rooms do you have and then I realized wait I have no concept of how large these rooms are or what that even means so do you have separate do you have separate rooms or is it that you have an enclosure that encompasses different spaces
2: yes it's an enclosure but it's all one space really it's just it's really really large space that's all racked up and that's where we have our archives and you can either have your own uh, unit or you can share with others but because they don't allow many people down it's so secure and everything because it just has a barcode on you know there's very very little labels as to who owns it or where it comes from in terms of security yeah so it's pretty tight down there to be absolutely honest with you but the nice thing is that you can go down and work there you know say if you wanted to do a little inventory project on a couple of boxes you know, they'll find space mm. for you, nice workspace for you as well. So so as well as kind of calling the material back down to London, you can kind of part work there for a few days.
1: Oh, wow. As long as you've got your oxygen with you.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, so they would either bring it up to the surface or if you feel comfortable, they'd find an area. But you'd obviously be monitored and, and go up for regular yeah. breaks and things like that. But yeah, so it's quite nice in that respect.
0: Wow. One last highly professional question for me, and that is: Does the normal lift ha- have nice little lift music if it's like an apartment store lift?
2: <laughs> Do you know? I don't remember it. It does, which is a shame because you'd want the girl from a wouldn't you? I know, right? They've missed a the trick there.
0: <laughs> Deep Store, if you're listening, this is just a hot tip. You should have that.
1: <laughs> so, Deep Store is are they a partner company with the Salt Mine? because it's a working salt mine is it in other areas yeah
2: it is yeah yeah so it's all it's all kind of under their umbrella organization as we mentioned earlier you know when you know your barcode they can retrieve it for you send it in a a van Mm. and deliver it kind of next day essentially but as as we alluded to earlier you know you've got to have a good database that records where that Mm. barcode is kept and what is in within that box which is often a bit of an issue
1: That just sounds like the most amazing project to do in order to be able to access it <laughs> whilst taking it massively away from the public in terms of space. It's really improving access.
0: I mean, it, there, there is that side to it, of course, that, you know, if you decided to send it to deep store, then obviously it has been. Thoroughly recorded can mm. probably be digitized in some way because you will probably, as part of that process, you may have taken photos and stuff, so it becomes yeah. accessible in a different way, and you can always retrieve them. It's just not instantaneous. But how often is something instantaneous anyway? If someone came to the museum and said, "Okay, I'd like to look at this, please," it's not like we would all throw ourselves into a our van and go, "Oh, we're going to fetch it now." To- outsource that lead in time in some ways to go okay well we just have that retrieved and it will be here in a a day or two without us having to leave the building how amazing
1: would that be (laughs) that would would be amazing honestly
0: would be just as instantaneous as it is
2: now anyway probably more so because it it would honestly probably be quicker it's right for certain collections obviously you just have to you know mitigate that risk of transporting you know up and down you know Mm. the motorway or depending where your base is and also kind of the sustainability issue you know should we be be moving these items using petrol and and all this business so it's really a handy handy space at the minute but yeah i wonder whether there'll be more in the future so there'll be slightly less travel you know it's kind of offsetting that really isn't it thinking uh, different options essentially for different collections potentially yeah
0: because I suppose with both archaeology and of archival material, there's like only so many requests for that mm-hmm. material ne- necessarily, especially if it's been digitized in some way or the information is available in a different format. So there may actually not be that much in the way of retrieval.
1: So I'm guessing that there's energy input for the environmental controls, but the fact that there's not so much kind of outside influence, it doesn't need to be maintained so
2: much. Yeah, it- it's definitely a very stable environment, naturally. Anyway, mm. um, and it's a reduced, slightly reduced oxygen levels as well. O- only slightly, but um, you, you do definitely feel slightly different as you go down there because it's two hundred meters underground. But then the plant is essentially in there just to just to stabilise, uh, or you know, anything mm. that happens, or as people maybe are working in that space, it might change a little bit. So that's what the the plant is there to do, essentially. So, something,
0: I mean, it might not be similar to Deep Store, but sort of. I mean, in terms of long term and quite secure storage. Chloe, I remember whenever we talked about this episode, you were always like, I want to talk about the seed vault.
1: <laughs> oh my God, I've got it open on Wikipedia right now. <laughs>
0: See, the level of excitement is amazing. So, we, I mean, it's not obviously. I love
1: it so much. <laughs> it's not a museum, but it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Chloe, do you want to tell us a bit about it? <laughs> This might be relevant to um, some things about cold storage that we've we, we've got uh, a little bit on later. Mm. It is the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, right? And I don't know how many people will have heard of it. Yes. it I heard it on the news once, and I thought, "Are you <laughs> kidding me?" Because essentially, it's. I mean, I might. This is going to be a um, a very <laughs> frivolous uh, summary, but it's in order to protect against sort of, you know, massive apocalyptic scale crises yeah. basically so that they have the seeds it's cold storage so that they can always access different species
0: yeah i think they uh it's epic
1: i think i thought
0: of it as kind of a reference library but they actually dis- yeah. describe themselves more as a bank safety deposit kind of area where it's like we we keep them safe it's not for retrieval unless something goes really badly wrong it's like an archive of genetic material in seed form which is amazing
1: you don't really think about seeds as being like the sort of i mean maybe maybe people do particularly botanists (laughs) but you don't really think of (laughs) seeds as being like the the makeup of the world but it really is that and insects obviously but it's just such a sort of i mean if you google it now everybody it is a fantastic building it's a fantastic project and it's just got this sort of really deep time solution finding way about it i just find absolutely fascinating that these will be here still in hundreds of years and if something crazy does happen then it will protect against massive loss of 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 species Mm. and it's just i just find it I just find it really crazy and amazing. Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. So I I did did a little bit of reading because I knew you really did. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. You're welcome. (laughs) Because I was intrigued by the location, right? So why would you choose there other than it's cold? Um, Yeah. But then there were other factors, like there's very little tectonic activity. It's really high above sea level. So even if all the ice caps melt, it'll be okay it's got permafrost which helps keep everything cool for longer Mm -hmm. so the idea is that even if all the equipment fails because it's being kept cold by various plants and stuff um even if all the equipment fails it will take at least 200 years for anything to defrost to zero really oh my god that's so cool But speaking of uh, cold storage, cold storage doesn't always have to be particularly extreme necessarily, which is something one of our interviewees will talk us through.
3: I'm Sarah Allen and I'm a photographic materials conservator. So I have to deal with cold storage quite a lot. So I am one half of Lux and Livre. We are consultants in photographic materials, book and paper conservation, and I've been working as a yeah, photographic materials conservator for over a decade now, uh, having gone through a three-year training and development programme with the National Trust in English Heritage. Um, but yes, over the years, I've had to deal with a lot of smelly plastics, putting mm. it bluntly. <laughs> yeah. And yes, really the only solution for that issue is, um, is cold storage.
0: Yeah, that's that is one of the big things where I feel like it comes up in conversation a lot. Where it's like, what do we do with our plastics? Well,
3: wow. I'm actually an objects conservator as well, so um, I think I'm the only photographic materials conservator that I've ever well, I've ever come across that comes from an objects background. I love it. That's what I love about photographic materials is that they is an umbrella term that covers so many different materials. So it does cover plastics and glass and metals and um, all sorts of things. But yeah, plastics. Oh dear. (laughs) Um, The good thing about the cold storage that I usually end up implementing for clients is that it's actually low cost, um, Mm. low tech.
0: (laughs) All of these things appeal to me.
3: (laughs) Always good, (laughs) but allows, you know, really, really stringent environmental conditions that would be otherwise really difficult to try and maintain. Um, So that's what I always try and reassure people is that Yes, it's is an issue, but the way to deal with it actually can be quite straightforward.
0: I'm really glad to hear that because I have to say that, you know, when I think cold storage, I think, you know, big, fancy museums, you know, that might have like a I don't a special walk-in freezer or something or like something that feels expensive and unattainable.
3: You can go all the way up to, you know, the huge vaults that the BFI have. It's incredible. Um, I mean, it's huge and expensive and very necessary for them. But actually... On, you can use the same principles right down to a small domestic freezer so it can range from yeah huge expensive you know needs a whole team to maintain type vaults but down to something that's relatively straightforward it doesn't need to be carefully managed i do always have to try and caveat with, with that with people when they say all oh, right we'll just stick it in our freezer no 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 don't definitely don't do that <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> it's not a bag of peas you need to look after it <laughs>
3: You don't want it to get a freezer burn like your bread does. Yeah. Yeah, it can be lots of different things. So it could be something a bit bigger than a normal freezer, Mm. like a walk-in freezer, like you said. But actually, even a walk-in freezer, that is obviously more expensive, but actually really quite cheap to run because the technology is so much better than it used to be. So you could actually do some kind of cost-benefit analysis of keeping things in cool temperatures, for example, with Mm -hmm. a really expensive HVAC system running it. Or actually thinking, right, well, maybe we'll take a look at our collection and see what really, really needs to be kept at cold temperatures. And maybe we'll transfer that into a freezer, which is a larger outlay, but much cheaper to run in the long term. And actually, then we can not let the rest of our collection, you know, go to pot, but, you know, manage that in a bit more of a passive way.
0: That's a good sustainability angle. I like that because that's one of my, you know, worries with these kind of more elaborate solutions.
3: It all comes back to really, really understanding your collection. Mm. And, you know, if you end up thinking, right, we've got a photographic collection and we need to keep it all at, well, sub-zero temperatures. But actually, if you look into your collection and most of it is black and white prints, but you've got a small amount of plastics, then, you know, black and white prints actually are quite tolerant Mm. in comparison. And actually you can design your storage so it is more sustainable, easier to run, easier to manage. So when when you said
0: you can't just bung it in a freezer,
3: what does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) So when I'm recommending to clients to store in a domestic type freezer. I usually recommend to store the materials using a method called the CMI method, the critical moisture indicator method, where essentially you place your negatives, that's what we're normally dealing with with photographic materials, it's, um, it's plastic negs, um, into a box. And then you essentially, Put them through a double bagging system. So you put the box into a ziploc bag, you seal it. Mm-hmm. Um, you then put um, some kind of desiccant in an, uh, in another layer. So usually, what what I recommend to use is desiccated mount card or blotter, something like that. Yeah, and then. In that layer, you also put moisture indicator and then bag it again. The idea being that the double bagging system provides a kind of microclimate for the collection. So you, oh, sorry, I should also say you need to precondition your collection at a certain RH, the RH that you'd like it to maintain in the freezer what that allows is for you to see if there's any, any change in RH in the bagging system. So if the bags fail or for some reason the mm, RH is yeah. rising, you can easily see them from the moisture indicator whether it's been compromised. And if it is, it's just a question of rebagging them. So I, I guess, you know, if the corner snags or the seal's not quite right or mm. something like that. So, yeah, it, like I said, it's relatively low cost. Mm. Um, because you're just dealing with ziploc bags desiccated card but it is something that you need to manage really carefully because if you if for some reason say the freezer fails and you're not monitoring that freezer yeah what you're essentially doing by double bagging the negatives is the opposite of what you would really want to do because you're creating a microclimate so you're you're trapping all those those gases that the plastics off gassing within that bag i like
0: that um this sounds achievable you know like I don't feel intimidated by by the approach that you're describing, which is really great. But yeah, so it's, it isn't uh, put in a freezer and forget forever. It is put in a freezer and then monitor, which, you know, in theory, yes. in theory, you know, we, we should very much do with, with all of our collections. We shouldn't really be putting everything in a box and going, <laughs> yeah. that's there forever now. Do
3: you? That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's, some, there's a really good resource actually that's a kind of video interactive training series of videos that I recommend people to watch if they are considering it that was done by the National Park Service in the US. Oh. Um, there might be other examples of it, but it is a really good introduction to the principles of coal storage and down to the materials that you need. I do adapt them, their methods slightly in terms of I'm a bit belt and braces. There's, there's some other really good um, online resources that can help people think about whether they do need cold storage now or whether it's something to factor in in five years. So the Image Permanence Institute, again, it's in the US, they're kind of world leaders in this field, Mm. has done a lot of research about this, and that's where the idea of cold storage actually came from. And Because for for negatives, I should say it's not, well, for photographic materials, it's not just deteriorating plastics, it's also for colour material. For colour photographic material, especially 20th century colour photographs they are actually really temperature sensitive they do what's called a colour shift and um, so the higher the temperature the quicker it fades so if an institution wants to keep their photographs looking the way they do now then they need to think about cold storage for that for colour material as well mm. and the other thing to say is that it doesn't actually take that long to acclimatize the material oh that's good so you can still retrieve the material yeah
0: yeah because access was another thing that I was thinking about but
3: but lots of places do instigate a cold storage program as part of a digitization program. So often things have been digitized before going into cold storage, and that's generally the way it goes. Oh, okay. Um, so quite often you, it will be very, very rarely accessed. It's really for long term preservation.
0: I thought it was just really heartening to hear that actually cold storage doesn't have to be, you know,
2: epic. <laughs> yeah. I really like when um, storage solutions are kind of creative, you know, they're either low cost or low tech, but just full of yes. common sense <laughs> yes, <laughs> that everybody exactly. can do. You know, we can all throw money at a situation, but um, it's actually quite, it's more uh, inspiring to, to think about it really and uh, either localize it or, um, yeah, just find, find easier ways of doing things really.
1: That's the thing though, isn't it? That not ev- most people don't have masses and masses of material mm-hmm. that needs to be chilled. But most people have a little bit and that can be almost more difficult to deal with because it's the kind of thing that can be quite easily just like almost put aside if there isn't any facility for it or if it's too complicated or too expensive. And yeah. then you're you're not dealing with something that would be fairly straightforward, at least to deal with and maintain.
2: And have you been to um, Boston Spa? Where the British Library collections are kept. No. They have this amazing uh, warehouse, which is conditioned to have low oxygen environment. So you don't work in there, but it's all robots. Robots retrieve all the items, and it's absolutely Mm. amazing to see. It's kind of, you know, end of Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where it just goes on into the distance. Um, And that's absolutely fantastic. And you just see this motorised little robot go up and get everything and and bring it onto a conveyor belt. So it's... um, Yeah, so that works really well, obviously, because it's a low oxygen environment and slows the rate of deterioration.
0: I wonder if that's what I found a video of, because I was trying to look up examples of places that did low oxygen uh, storage. And uh, one thing that came up was a BBC video uh, from 2015. And it was about the British Library, uh, where they kept all their newspapers. Yes. Yeah, that's it. They said in the video that it had the same oxygen as on top of Mount Everest, so not very much. Uh, wow! So the air is really thin. So, you know, you, you can be in there for a bit, you know, if, if you need to. But there's a reason they have robots.
1: <laughs> exactly. That is my next question, what that means.
2: Yeah, the, the oxygen levels are at that point just to stop fire, essentially. So if, even if there is a spark or something happens, it won't be, there's no oxygen to keep it going.
0: It, it reminds me vaguely of a, um, again, low oxygen environments can be a little bit more low tech as well. Because I put out a call on Twitter about people to talk to about extreme storage. And something that came up was someone mentioned there was something called Project Airless at the Natural History Museum. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, I've heard about this.
0: 2015 to 2018, basically they had a project to try to halt pyrite decay in their geological collection. Oxidation kind of leads to sulfuric acid buildup and... Uh, I think there was some ferrous sulfate as well. Once it takes hold in the specimen, it can happen at really low RH as well. So oh, it's, great, yeah. So it, it's it's kind of not ideal. So I think there was something like fourteen thousand specimens or something affected. You know, like <gasps> you know, like once they'd done condition checks, you know, they were like, oh, it's quite a widespread problem. But the the solution was relatively low tech. You know, like the affected specimens were put in acid-free trays, and then there was little plasticote cushion for it and uh, then they they would have a plastic bag that they heat sealed and inside was also an oxygen scavenging piece of material and and that's just how they're stored and that helps at least slow the decay like it's a relatively low-tech thing you know like that's not let's build a store where we can keep really low oxygen conditions it's okay well let's do microclimates then for each specimen so that's again making it a little bit more manageable
2: we've been working with um nhm because they're fantastic at sharing information which is brilliant and we're using that system for some of our artistic uh, sketchbooks so we have oh. um we have a collection of um we've got loads of different scrapbooks that we've been collecting over the past kind of I don't know, five ten years and they mm. can be full of any media so it could be you know food wrappers um just a really wild selection of material organic materials and things like this oh, amazing um, wow and we have this new collection which is fantastic and it's massive it's pretty massive but we're going to be using that system because we want to um oh, lovely we want to retain as much as we can um and you know it's sellotape and print stick and post-it notes and kind of everything mm. that will die soon causes
4: problems
2: (laughs) so we just want to reduce the rate until we're at a point where we can kind of you know properly record everything and hopefully digitize and conserve so yeah there's lots of different um you know ways to use that that technology essentially yeah
0: so in kind of the opposite direction of that i thought we could talk about keeping things wet
4: Yeah, uh, my name's Toby. I'm a curator for the uh, Newport Museum and Art Gallery in South Wales. And I'm specifically responsible for the uh, Newport Medieval Ship Project.
0: Could you tell us a bit more about what the Newport Ship is?
4: Yeah, so it was uh, nearly 20 years ago, in the uh, summer of 2002, uh, they were doing some building works in the center of Newport, and they discovered the re- intact remains of a very large clinker-built merchant vessel, and uh, it, it was found inside, hemmed in by a cofferdam that they'd just inserted. Uh, the were, archaeologists were confronted with a very large, articulated, uh, waterlogged wooden structure, uh, not to mention there were about a thousand artifacts inside and around the remains and about a thousand loose timbers lying on top of it and so the decision was made uh, in 2002 in the summer to excavate what was there and then eventually after um, several weeks or a month or two of that they made the decision to actually save it and then what was then involved was actually removing the overburden all the loose timbers and documenting everything and then uh, raising all the artifacts as well and then exposing the inta- intact articulated hull of the vessel, they then had to, given its size and complexity, the only way to actually lift it was to disassemble it into thousands of individual timbers, you know, remarkably well preserved, waterlogged, but not exactly uh, substantially decayed, if that makes sense. Uh, they were actually walking on the ship timbers in their steel toe caps oh, back and wow. forth. And that's actually a mixed blessing because the timbers are so intact and the cellular structure is so intact that you know, we found it very difficult, A, to get the peg in and B, to get the water out because normally it'd be very degraded and there'd be lots of access for the water to, uh, you know, to get out of the timbers. Yeah. But,
0: so you have all these pieces. What do you do with them after that? Like you, what's the next step for this?
4: Or it took about three months to uncover it and expose everything and then about three months to disassemble it and raise it. So start to finish it took about six months. But at that point, it's a, it's a bit of a complicated story, but they uh, had a series or succession of sites where they took the timbers and initially they were stored in, you know, tanks made of breeze blocks lined with pol- with pond liner. And then uh, they'd have to move again. And so they'd make another temporary setup. But then they made a final move into a huge warehouse, a 50 by 50 meter open warehouse. And they... had time to plan and prepare this move. And so uh, they designed and constructed 17 tanks. And the tanks were made of scaffold pipe, Framework and fittings, and mm. the actual shell was made of PVC, just the same material you see on the sides of Arctic lorries. And so it was actually quite cost-effective. All this is off-the-shelf material. Each tank measures five by ten meters, and they're half meter deep. And they sit on a bed of three or four centimeters of nice sand, and that helps pad it between the concrete floor at the bottom of the tank. And so you can actually get in the tanks. They're robust enough that you can just get in and walk around with your wellies on. Oh, Because uh, that nice layer of sand on the bottom cushions it and makes sure nothing pokes you know, yeah. into the bottom of the tank. Eventually we had covers made of the same material that fit over the tanks. And so it's PVC, it's very durable and uh, doesn't let light in and all that. And just an ideal solution and very cost-effective because these are soft tanks. You can actually flat pack an entire tank onto, actually you can probably fit three or four on a pallet. And then you, then you just have a pile of scaffold pipes and a and four or five buckets of scaffold fittings, and that's your entire tank. We calculated, you know, given their dimensions, they have about a 25,000-liter volume. And we worked out that, on average, we could put about 10 tons of timber in a tank, and then we would put about 15,000 liters of water in there or wax. We use these exact same tanks for the peg treatment. So after storing the timbers in there, when we were doing the cleaning and recording of the timbers— and organizing everything we then condensed it down into about five five and a half tanks uh very very densely packed and that's what we did our peg or we did our ammonium our diammonium citrate uh pre-treatment in and then rinsed that and then we started our incremental peg treatment in these exact same tanks we didn't use a heated treatment at all because uh we went to a very you know low percentage of uh peg two hundred and thirty-three fifty, a relatively low percentage so mm-hmm. we didn't have to heat it Straight from there, we actually had a freeze dryer sited in the old warehouse, and we would fish them out of these tanks at the end of their uh, pretreatment and then whack them in the freeze dryer.
0: Wow. It sounds like a really giant assembly line.
4: Because we had 3,000 timbers, it was it had to be an assembly line. It had to be efficient. And the beauty of having this huge warehouse was that we were able to organize material by function or, or, or by size. Okay. I just want to mention that we we tried that. We actually had a failed experiment uh in terms of how to control the mosquitoes.
0: Oh, yeah, because big water tanks. Yeah.
4: Yeah, we had uh, half the warehouse was basically standing water. Yeah. And um, we thought, oh, you know, put some goldfish in there and see what happens. And uh, the goldfish just got lazy and ate the food, not the mosquitoes. <laughs> and, uh, but the problem then was the gold- goldfish had babies and a few dozen fish turned into hundreds, if not thousands of fish. And, uh, <laughs> We eventually got rid of all those, gave them away on open days and a byproduct of the food was waste and the tanks were just lined with this uh, fish waste in the bottom and it was super slippery and Mm. took a lot of cleaning to get rid of all that. But we did eventually start using a bit of a Cathon CG, a biocide, and then uh, we also found that it was much better to have covers on the tanks. We left them open for years so the public could see what we were doing. Yeah. Because we had open days all the time, but in the end we think, it was a it would've been a much better idea to have the tanks covered as tightly as possible all the time. We didn't have to do water changes very often and when you actually think about it, uh, fifteen thousand liters of water times seventeen tanks, if you you know, even if you're doing that every month or every six months, that's a huge amount of uh, yeah. water.
0: That was one of my like concerns. Like, okay, you you're storing something in water, but it's not like it can be the same water all the time and then how often do you have to change it?
4: No, we, we kept it on things. We didn't as long as you covered the tanks you wouldn't get fungal growth. After we finished the freeze drying process, uh, we needed a way to store the timbers. So what we did then was we moved to a smaller warehouse, about 25 by 25 meters. And what we had experimented with before was taking shipping containers, like 20-foot, you know, half-size shipping containers, and um, lining them with Kingspan foam. And then putting racking in there and uh, like a small dehumidifier and just making kind of a box that we stored timbers in. And that worked great until, you know, we realized, you know, 100 timbers would fill a container and we had 3,000 timbers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so we moved uh, to, this, to the new warehouse and we took this opportunity here to actually build huge rooms within the building, but out of very simple materials. We made a big horseshoe shape out of pallet racking and then we clad it with Kingspan and we held it all together with scaffold pipes and we made the roof out of scaffold pipes as well and put the Kingspan on top of that. And so for Again, I'm probably around 10,000 pounds per room. Each room measures uh, six meters by 12 meters by about five meters tall. It's about 360 cubic meters of space. And the brilliant thing is we, because of the horseshoe shape, we can actually drive our forklift in with a huge pile of timbers, turn it and forklift it onto like all the different bays And so we have this huge volume of space that we, as we drive in, because a lot of the Newport ship material is just too heavy for anyone to lift. And so we have a very efficient way of storing this, and we just keep filling up the racks and the bays. And then as soon as the big horseshoe shape is is filled, we have all the floor space in the middle, you know, really cost peanuts in the big scheme of things. We built two of these big timber stores. Now we got some cheap old uh, secondhand double glazing big windows, and we set those into the walls. And so... (gasps) people and we've put lights in there, floodlights and so people on open days we just turn lights on you can see inside these timber stores and and uh, see all the timbers and all the artifacts stacked up and it's you know it's pretty impressive
0: storing things when it's like awaiting treatment is basically storage because ultimately you're still storing it
2: (laughs) and i love i love a good old story where something went wrong (laughs) Me too Thinking about goldfish, blum and I would never have thought of I, that. Yeah. For mosquitoes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed that as well. I do like these, and I feel the same way in conferences and stuff when you have talks. When people go, "This went wrong. This went wrong. Shouldn't have done that. That was a bad (laughs) idea." But this is what we learned from it. That is the most kind of helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Because initially, I was like, "Oh, I'm so on
0: board with this." Oh, and then they just had babies and pooped everywhere. (laughs) 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 I'm no longer on board. I love the notion that you could go to an open day and just receive goldfish. (laughs) That yeah. (laughs) So on the kind of still keeping things moist kind of a
1: spectrum of uh,
0: <laughs> storage, I was talking to someone about uh, reburial of archaeological materials.
1: Oh, now that is extreme. So today we're talking about
0: storage and extreme storage at that and uh, a bit of a curveball that came up on Twitter was reburial as a storage solution. So I'm here with someone who will tell us a little bit more about the subject. Would you like to introduce yourself?
5: I'm Angela Middleton and I work as an archaeological conservator for Historic England. I'm based at their research facilities in Portsmouth and uh, in my day-to-day work I normally look at Archaeological remains recovered from either land sites or terrestrial sites, but also from underwater sites. And uh, and apart from that, I also give advice to the sector or provide training opportunities for, for the general um, conservation and archaeology sector. Reburial,
0: obviously archaeological only, but you know it's that was an aspect I hadn't even considered in this in this episode until that point.
5: Yeah, I I don't know of any other examples in sort of the heritage sector where things are literally being put back or, or left where they're being found. So I thought I'd try to give a definition of what in situ preservation and reburial is. So and that is basically when you discover archaeological remains, but you leave them where you found them, and then the they either get incorporated beneath or within a development. So normally we do uncover archaeological remains when a development is going on and you then go through a process of, yeah, a huge amount of decisions have to be made of whether you remove everything from the ground and then go ahead with the development but in some cases it may be appropriate and suitable that you leave the archaeological remains in situ so this is basically you don't move them. And then we have reburial on the other side and the process is initially the same. You discover some archaeological remains but you then take them out of the ground and then you deposit them elsewhere in a different location. And why might that happen? The rationale behind both approaches are that we sort of Look at the archaeological remains and think, well, they have survived for hundreds and sometimes thousands of years in the ground. And they have been exposed to sort of conducive environments that are good for the long term preservation of these materials. And we think, well, if we just leave it in the ground, they will, you know, survive longer for the future, basically. Uh, the other a- aspect is, of course, that full-scale excavation and then post-excavation analysis, including conservation, archive storage, curation, everything that comes after an excavation is not only time-consuming, but it's also very, very costly. Mm. And then especially with archaeological um, collections, we sort of, I think, are reaching a little bit of a crisis point. Bluntly put, the stores and the archives are full and we are sort of running out of space. Yeah. So we have to have to take a bit more of an informed decision as to not only what we excavate but also once it's been excavated what we actually keep and put in our stores. Yeah. So when when you do discover remains, you know, you you can go through various decision uh, trees and processes to inform your decision as to whether it's appropriate or suitable in that case to to leave the remains in the ground or whether they should be excavated and normally the first thing you would have to do is look at the significance of the remains that you found so you know all sorts of aspects come into play there, sort of not, not just the age of the remains or the date, but also, you know, sort of how much can we learn from it? Can we can we learn something from it already when it's still in the ground? Or do we actually have to have it out of the ground and mm. and then deal with it? So, and Historic England, we have actually published guidance on that to help developers, but also archaeologists and people that are involved in the decision-making process to yeah. to go through those motions, to help them, you know make a decision but also know you know what questions to ask and what what sort of tools to use to come up with with the right answers that's brilliant we'll
0: definitely link yeah. to that in the show notes for sure because that sounds like a terrific resource
5: i think the most important thing that we always say is other than establishing the significance of your archaeological remains you also need to establish the baseline of its current state of preservation because you you absolutely need to implement a monitoring system. So just because you leave something in the ground or you bury it into the ground again doesn't mean that you don't have to look after it or care for it so this is almost like um, the environmental monitoring program that we're all very familiar with is you know your stores and archives or in, in in museums so similarly to that we are trying to to monitor the environmental conditions when remains are left in the ground mm-hmm. just so that we can ensure their long-term survival If we're thinking of all the materials that we encounter in the archaeological record, waterlogged wood is definitely one of the materials where we have most evidence for, simply because when it does survive... Well, in normally in waterlock conditions, we are very quickly dealing with a huge amount of of material. So, in terms of volume, and and then you really have to, you know, think about well, well, how many posts, how many uprights do we actually need in our museum collection? Yeah. <laughs> because chances are. That even though they're all handmade and all individual, they're all fairly similar. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, they all all fulfilled a certain function, and and you know that really determines their sort of size and shape. Sometimes um, a representative sample, for example, can be um, excavated and then conserved and and then deposited in a in a in a museum, and you might leave the rest in the ground. Um, so one example where I was involved with a reburial project took. Place on the Isle of Wight, and we worked together with colleagues from the Isle of Wight Museum Services, and they had a quite a large amount of waterlogged timbers that were uncovered during a uh, intertidal survey that took place in the 1990s. Sort of timbers from uh, from construction to conserve those can be quite costly, but then of course, you also have the follow on cost from from the long term curation and storage that follows on from conservation project, yeah, with that in mind, the uh, Isle of Wight Museum services wanted to explore. Reburial, as you mentioned earlier, as a natural storage solution, Mm. and we uh, joined forces. And lengthiest and trickiest part in the whole project was actually identifying a suitable burial plot, burial site, and and when you think you you've got a suitable burial site, you would then again run some run a monitoring test to really collect data about the sort of annual natural fluctuations in terms of water table, water chemistry, that sort of thing. And you you build your evidence base. And then you also have to ensure that the land use on that plot of land that you've identified doesn't change. You know how long is a piece of string, but let's say for the next fifty years. Yeah. So all those questions you have to sort of ask and and consider. And if you think that all the answers are positive, then uh, you go ahead and you literally open up a hole in the ground <laughs> and put the timbers back in. Now, this this is the simplified version of it. Of course, in reality, it's all a bit more different, a bit more complicated. So before we uh, put any timbers back into this hole. In the ground we analyzed the timbers um, to establish that uh, baseline preservation state that we have now Mm. and uh, we looked at the water content of the timbers but we also looked at the lignin to cellulose ratio all that data gives you sort of the baseline and then you put the timbers back into the ground and you cover it up and and you also have some monitoring uh, sons in the ground that tell you how quickly the water table establishes itself again, what the redox potential of your burial environment is, and you can also sort of extract water samples to check the water chemistry. What happens is when you open up a hole in the ground, you sort of disturb this very good and. Imp- burial environment that you want to achieve again. And then uh, we monitor uh, initially at quite short intervals to to see how the burial environment reestablishes itself back to the before you open up the hole in the ground, basically. And you can also um, put in uh, sacrificial samples that you can then extract at certain points without actually disturbing the overall burial environment. And in in this case, we had modern wooden samples, but also archaeological wood attached to a long pole, and we called them kebabs. (laughs) They were sort of really long poles, about two metres long, uh, that had various wooden samples attached to them. And then they were wrapped in a fabric called teram, which is a geotextile, and after... after every three months, so three, six, three months, six months, nine months, twelve months, we pulled those kebabs out, and then uh, analysed the the wooden samples again, and then comparing that to our baseline wood analysis data to see whether we see sort of what trends we are picking up, basically, whether wood decay is massively uh, increased or whether it's sort of as expected or whether it plateaus off, that sort of thing. Uh, That went on for a year and a half, a good two years. On top of that, we've also laser scanned some of the wooden artifacts. And the thinking behind that is that it's not just the chemistry we're interested in. We're also interested in the overall shape and morphology of, of the artifacts, because when you're looking at waterlogged wood, you're often interested in the surfaces. This is where the interaction with the people of the past really took place. This is where the tool marks are. This is where any evidence of use can be found, that sort of thing. So if the burial environment does not preserve that, then we are losing uh, that, that level of information. And you might say that your archaeological wood is sort of reduced in information and knowledge that we can gain from it and overall all results were really encouraging and i can't tell you after how many years but it's uh, six years probably now the wood is still in its reburial hole in the ground on a lovely meadow on the isle of wight with some cows grazing over it and um and and all the environmental monitoring data is all um positive and it looks like yeah the the wood is is doing well in that in that little plot there of course, if anyone wants to get to it, that's a different story, you know, <laughs> so that's yeah, a bit that's more true. complicated. It's it's not as easy as just going down into your store and, you know, getting a piece of wood out for someone. But that's why it's so important to collect as much information and data as you can before you put anything back into the ground but it it is an option and yeah i suppose with that project we could provide some evidence that it's a viable option if if you can identify a a suitable plot of land
0: if i was a piece of archaeological timber i too would like to be under a meadow with some cows grazing on it
5: Yeah, it, it it was a nice plot. I remember, however, one particular site visit. I was pregnant at the time and the cows looked not so friendly. And we all concluded that if we had to run, I probably wouldn't make it back to the gate in time. And, uh, and so we had to reschedule that and ask the farmer to please move the cows to an adjacent field and make sure that the um, that the gates is fully
0: closed. Now, that's an amazing he- health and safety concern. I'd never ever considered
5: <laughs> <laughs> yes I, I i don't think that featured uh, on the risk assessment really Quite. either. Like...
0: something i really enjoyed with this one is just the notion that this is natural like a really natural solution because it, it was buried to begin with and then we dug it up and mm. now we're trying to put it back i, I just thought it was really fascinating
2: I like the way she talks about, um, obviously, crisis points, that stores are full <laughs> and you need to find alternative storage, which, you know, echoes for so many different collections across the world, really, doesn't mm. it? <laughs> you know, stores are full.
0: It really hammered home that this isn't just we dig a hole, and we chuck it in and then we leave it. Because I guess I've, I've kind of heard of Reburial, but so much more I've asked disposal rather than storage before and Mm. this was very much not what this was you know this was storage this is the conditions are being monitored they're making sure that nothing's being built on or around the site so that it's not you know you know so it's not a short-term solution Uh, there was so much thought and consideration that went into this as as it should be with all storage that i just really really enjoyed it
2: i was going to mention actually have you have you seen the beautiful depot in rotterdam no, no. so it should should be opening this year i believe it might have got a bit delayed with lockdown and things like this but basically it is a brand new building just for storage and it's all mirror clad and they the intention oh. is that 100% of the material in storage is accessible and viewable either individually walking around or you can get a guided tour what? it's pretty sexy obviously. so yeah basically wow. I, I think storage is sexy should be the new hashtag that we're using for this one
1: yes storage is so sexy oh my god is it big and circular? it is I just googled it oh my god it's gorgeous it's, <gasps> it,
2: it holds I've got some figures ladies it holds 151,000 oh artworks it's called <gasps> the Noah's Ark and it hopes to attract 250,000 people a year Is that gorgeous I mean that is amazing
0: (gasps) that's a uh, a distinct throwback to our visible storage episode where we talk about how people should do this yes it
2: is
1: (laughs) oh oh vintage now (laughs) yeah
0: vintage well that's a road trip Chloe
1: (laughs) oh my god can we can we do that can anyone give us money for that please thanks (laughs) funding
2: (laughs) wow that's the lovely thing about storage because it's so massive it's such an umbrella term for looking after all of the collections isn't
3: it <laughs> it's yeah, caring for yeah, everything
2: literally. we own <laughs> we look after essentially and it's that stewardship that that storage kind of encapsulates i think which is quite that's why i love it bit of a geek
0: aren't we all as usual we welcome your comments questions and corrections And this time it's neither, really. Uh, Instead, I would just like to mention that if you're a fan of music, you should head over to our YouTube channel, where we've just released a song called Something to Conserve. A bit of a love song to conservation and all of those among us who really miss working on things. Go on, go and have a listen. If you're enjoying The C-Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crushed the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. Well, it's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C-word and join our bunch of absolute champions. And a warm welcome to our latest patron, Anche. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. We're The Seaward, and you'll be listening to Emma Duggan, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenny Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about new media. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaward.show, tweet us at the C-Word Podcast, or simply email us on the Podcast at gmon.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by D.D. Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson has been a wooden dice production.
1: Just not available. I'm sorry my cat just me out.
0: <laughs> Did you hear that? I didn't, but that's so cute. Sorry. <laughs>